You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There was all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. This is the second part of our interview with Master Sergeant Earl Plumley. In our first episode, Earl discussed his start in the U.S. Army as a private in the Oklahoma National Guard, then his time in the Marine Corps as an infantryman and a force reconnaissance Marine. Earl's story today picks up in his final days in the Marines prior to joining the Army as an 18 X-ray. You can listen to the previous episode on your favorite podcast app, or on MWI's website. Thanks for listening. After that deployment, where did your career take you? So on that deployment, I was uh, I, I was really kind of looking to to serve um, in in the Army's Tier One unit. Um, we didn't have one, um, and then I was also kind of struggling with what I wanted to do as a Force Recon Marine. And I and I had a mentor at the time, and 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 he gave me a really good class on mission and authorities. I didn't know what those were really, you know, so I knew what, I knew what the force reconnaissance mission was, but I didn't know what mission and authorities were. So he showed me what Congress told each service to do and what we were supposed to training to do, what the money was supposed to be for. And if you weren't doing the things that you were asked to do by Congress, you were really going to be frustrated. And, uh, and I wanted to do like, you know, special operations, irregular warfare, unconventional warfare, and the Marine Corps doesn't do it. So he's like, so you can be a part of the the most elite infantry in the world, that's where you're at. You know, you, you, you're you a force reconnaissance Marine and you are the the direct action arm for those those commanders and you support the infantry. Like the, if you can't support an infantry battalion, then you're not really doing your job. Uh, if you want to go and run off and, and chase these, pursue these other adventures, like you, he actually told me, you should join the army because that's that's what they do. And uh, ultimately that's that's what, that's the decision I made. So I, uh, I left the Marine Corps uh, while I was on terminal leave. Um, after that deployment, I went uh, to an Army recruiter. I uh, got an 18X-ray contract, and then uh, my last day in the Marine Corps, uh, I attempted to execute that contract, but MEPS closed. So I had a 12-hour break in service. Uh, came back the next morning, uh, raised my hand again, and uh, swore to uphold and defend the, the Constitution of the United States and uh, became an 18X-ray. What was it like putting on a different uniform? It was horrible. <laughs> uh, so I, I got to Fort Benning. I didn't have to attend uh, basic training. I was exempt from it, having been a Marine. Uh, so, I, But I did the first day and got my uniforms and uh, got a card. And, and I, 
I was just super disappointed in the Army's regs because they seemed so nebulous. Because the Marine Corps is like, hey, the thing goes here. It has to be an eighth of an inch. And this thing goes there. It's a sixteenth of an inch. And the Army regs were kind of confusing to me. And so, I, but I got it all put together, put the patches on my uniform. And, uh, and I was like asking questions. I was like, you know, my, I had my dress greens at the time. I was like, how does this work? And like, you know, they're used to dealing with privates. I'm like, well, you don't have any awards yet anyway. And uh, when you get to the, when you get to your unit, they'll teach you. And uh, so I left, I left off the, I left basic training after like the second day and got on a bus and went to Fort Bragg and got dropped off at the SOPC uh, barracks, which is the uh, special operations preparatory course. And uh, that's where I learned how to get dressed, which is, uh, I did figure out how to do it, but it was a very stressful way to do it Um, because we'd have uniform inspections. And uh, I mean, they're looking for guys that just don't put their uniform together. And I'm like, I I have it in my hands. Like, I don't know how to do this. Uh, So I would do, you know, a couple thousand burpees and uh, go put my uniform together. Uh, Every couple hundred, I'd get a chance to get it right. And uh, that's how I learned to to get dressed in the Army. What was Sopsy like having come from... Force Recon and a decade of service at this point? Uh, it was very unique. So I came in, you know, Force Reconnaissance Marine, combat veteran, and it's all these younger guys, never served, right? And they, they've done boot camp and, and they've become infantrymen, and, uh, and now they're here. So they've got about six, seven months in the Army. And uh, I'm vastly more experienced. And uh, what humbled me was they, they were trying to see what the population looked like. They said, who... Um, who has a master's degree, stand up and go to the wall. And, you know, like 10 of them stood up and went and stood on the wall. And I was like, geez. And then they said, who has a bachelor's degree? And almost everybody else but me and like two other Marines that had (laughs) joined the Army are left sitting there. I think it was, uh, there's like three or four of us that didn't have college degrees. And uh, that was, that was humbling. Like everybody here has a college degree but me. Are you kidding me? But uh, that, yeah, that was the population. They were all entrepreneurs or working professionals or at least had finished some some uh, some degree program somewhere and just decided to be a Green Beret instead. What was the training pipeline that took you to the Beret? So, you, you know, the first thing you do is selection. Selection f- for an uh, infantry guy, especially a Force Recon Marine, was not difficult. I, I think the, the biggest thing I got hit on was my leadership style as a Marine was somewhat shocking to soldiers and... Uh, to 18 x-ray soldiers especially because they they've never really worked in that environment but it was a great learning opportunity because i you know i had all these pink they call them pinks and it's like you know people critiquing how you act and behave and and uh and that helped me you know like because they especially in selection they don't know that they should be listening to me because i have all this vast experience it's just it's you're wearing a uniform with no uh no rank no name and you know just a number and and people didn't appreciate my leadership style and uh and it helped me kind of understand look at myself through somebody else's eyes which i found very useful but uh anyway you finish selection and it's just not that it's it's so that you're you meet the bare minimum um intelligence physical fitness and drive to have a chance at graduating the q course so it's not this big hard gate where only this elite few are going to make it it just it just makes sure that you have the the personal discipline to get in shape study and execute in a competent manner so that you can be successful in the q course uh, so, you know, I was expecting it to be so much harder than it was. Not that it was easy. I wouldn't want to go back right now. But it just wasn't this make or break experience in my life. Um, you know, you, you, you do the rugs to the Army standard and, and you're good. Uh, I didn't know much about the Army standard and I didn't really know my pace for, for the, the Army's uh, ruck marches. So I just never let more than 10 or 15 guys pass me. I think we started with three, 400 people. So I figured, you know, 
10, you know, the top 5% must be getting selected. So I just never let more than uh, 10 or 15 guys get in front of me. That was my pacing. But, you know, I get through that. I get selected, obviously. And I attend the Q course. And I didn't, I knew what Green Berets were, I thought. I didn't realize they all spoke a second language. Uh, so I didn't know I had to learn a language. That was, <laughs> uh, was news to me. And uh, I, uh, in, you know, I got Indonesian. And, uh, you know, while I was good in the field, I was a very strong NCO. I didn't really have an academic background. But luckily, I was surrounded by all these 18 x-rays that had, that is what they were good at. So I, you know, I got good um, ways of studying and the army's really good at teaching people dumber than me to speak a foreign language. So I went in, uh, got beat with some books by Ibu Maggie and uh, came out speaking Indonesian. So I got to continue my adventure. Speaking Indonesian was because you were regionally specializing? No, uh, they have a test that shows your propensity for each uh, language that they have. And Indonesian was the one they decided I would learn. Uh, it's considered an easy language because uh, it uses it uses the English alphabet. So you don't have to learn uh, kanji or script, Arabic script. I think it's true. I mean, that's that's even now I, I have a really easy time uh, brushing up to, to pass my proficiency test because I can get a book and just read uh, the Indonesian words. I don't have to, to memorize uh, kanji or something like that. After the Q course, yeah. where did your career take you? So I, I got I was very frustrated in the Q course because uh, I didn't realize how long it was either. And at this point, this is the longest, the uh, I think that the year that I'm in the Q course, it's the longest I've never deployed. And uh, and I'm panicking. Uh, this is you know, 2009 coming into 2010. I'm panicking that the the war on terror is going to end, and I'm going to miss it. You know, because I've only gone on two trips. Only one of them was really kinetic. And uh, I don't want to miss this war. So I, I, you know, graduate, go to first group. Thank God, you know, I'm finally getting to an operational unit. You know, I, I, we, I don't go to war right away. I, I do our JSET program, which is a, a joint training program we have with uh, um, friends and, and allies in the Indo-Pacific uh, theater. But, you know, I was disappointed to do that, you know. But I went to some really cool places. I went to uh, Nepal uh, and, and trained with the, the Mahabir Rangers and uh, I went to the uh, Philippines and trained with the, the Filipino DEA. But it also uh, it gave me time to become an actual Green Beret. Uh, I had some, I had a really strong team with some great mentors. Mark Colbert, uh, Chris Johnson, uh, really you know came in and taught me how to be a Green Beret and taught me how to do things. You know, I thought I was this super salty combat veteran, but I didn't know how to to plan logistically for extended operations you know i knew how to the, the most complex thing i ever did as a force recon marine was like a double basic load you know and i you know it's a good thing smart thinking that i was able to foresee that and then you know planning if international shipments of ammunition uh forecasting supplies to run training for six weeks uh eight months from now uh, you know in another country um i learned a lot and then just working with uh partners who aren't necessary as uh as excited about being at work that day as you are uh, and I think that's a, a failing that a lot of Marines have, is if you're not running at 110% volume, uh, they don't want to deal with you. And I was no different. So, like, you know, working with people that are showing up late, want to take two-hour lunches, and sometimes don't even come back after lunch for training, I was shocked. But, you know, I learned how to motivate people in another way because you can't threaten to UCMJ, a Filipino DEA agent, give him extra duty because it's not – not going to be a big motivator for him. So, you know, I had to find out different ways to to get people excited about the training. That transition from first man in the stack to now a weapons sergeant 
in a team advising foreign forces, that growth model, yeah. did that fundamentally change your understanding of who you were as a leader? Or It did, yeah. Uh, because as a force recon Marine, I was, I was never afraid. I want to go first because I know, uh, A, I want to be, be the guy that goes first because I want to, there might only be one person to shoot in there and I want to be the guy that shoots him. And I never worried about going in a room because I knew if I went, the guys behind me are coming. And then, uh, you know, meeting people that maybe aren't going to follow you if you're one man. Uh, and then how do you get them to? And, uh, and, and how do you get them to train hard? That, that, that was a huge amount of growth. And, uh, and then how do you do all these other jobs that I had taken for granted in the Marine Corps? Uh, you, know, how, you know, on our deployment, how do you generate intelligence that's actionable? Uh, how do you forecast and move um, supplies, you know, logistically? Uh, when you have to do plan and, and execute all those tasks, all those S shops in an infantry battalion, people do that for you, you know. And then on an ODA, um, you know, if you if you don't do it, it might not get done. When you were in the Philippines, were you now the one stealing the chocolate milk? <laughs> no, I didn't get to go down to the the task force, but I did become that. I became that green beret, where you know I'd be stealing, you know, stealing chocolate milk. Uh, because I need to trade it for, you know, 45 ammo because my, my fills shoot 45 and I've got too much nine mil. And I became that, that guy that was, uh, you know, we call it working in the gray. How do I fix these problems I have, uh, in unique ways? And, and yeah, I became that person where if you, if you saw me walking through your, uh, uh, your supply depot, you, you had better go and, uh, tackle me and tie me up. Um, because I would, I would cause things to happen. <laughs> when did you wind up transitioning from J sets? back to deployments in support of the war so, on terror 2012 we got our warning order that we were we were supposed to go and, and do the mission in the southern philippines the just of p and that changed and we're going to afghanistan so we went started doing the stuff i'm very familiar with you know we did us a phallic which is our urban combat train up for green berets and i'm you know we're back to my things where i'm very comfortable uh planning these um mounted movements dismounted movements i was on a free fall team so we're we're jumping and executing um, you know, reconnaissance on the ground. I'm like, finally, you know, because I've been, <clears throat> I've just been this, uh, what I felt like dead weight for about, you know, uh, three years now. And then we're finally doing these things where I actually can, uh, we're having a team meeting and I'll talk out loud because I know, I know how to do this part of the job. And I'm getting excited because, you know, we're, we're uh, there's a commando mission. And when people think special operations, they're thinking the commando mission. There's, you know, the black helicopters land and guys run off, guns blazing, uh, kill everybody, get back on the helicopter. And, uh, I'm, you know, we're getting the commando mission. Uh, not a doubt in my mind. And, uh, um, you know, we take off and, and leave the United States and land in Afghanistan. And we're getting the VSO mission, which is the vi village civility operations. And it was it was a SF's swag at, at uh, eliminating any of the the white space uh, for the enemy and if you know you ever see a, a news channel and it's in iraq or in afghanistan and you see a bunch of guys standing around with masks on um you know spouting their their nonsense and you're like i thought we were in that country why is there no you know why doesn't somebody shoot them we've got a hundred thousand troops in there and nobody's at this street corner and uh that was our swag we're gonna put a team in every village uh it's not a vast amount of combat power but it's uh it eliminates all these little nooks and crannies where the Taliban could hide. But uh, not the most exciting work, you know. Uh, you're you're training the local police. Uh, you're trying to help them identify and develop infrastructure in the village. Like, why is there no electricity? Uh, you guys should really think about 
you know, having a sewer instead of uh, dumping feces in the street. It's going to help a lot of things. And so it's, it's of value, but I don't think anybody would make a movie out of it that's, that's really worth watching. Uh, and, uh, but I, you know, once again, I learned all these things and I, I got unique problems. And at night, I still get to go out and set up ambushes for the Taliban. They're attacking our checkpoints. So we get to, to you know, blaze out as, as QRFs for our Afghan police and, and get in gunfights. And at that point, uh, I'd always kind of had these motivations to go, uh, we, you know, go to a, another selection. We call it the Long Walk and work in a Tier 1 unit and, and just live in helicopters and, and shoot bad guys. But I, I fell in love with being a Green Beret on this trip. <clears throat> Um, and I think if you have ADHD, you should always uh, try to find out how you can work as a Green Beret because uh, it, is, it is the place they built for us. Uh, every day I had some new thing to do, you know, and just these, these strange problems, and I got to solve them. And then, you know, you know figure out how I can smuggle fruit trees in from Pakistan um, in the morning, uh, go run a, a BZO range for my, um, my uh, anti-Taliban movement in the afternoon and then plan to execute a, an ambush on the Taliban forces that night to keep them off of our checkpoints. And I just, man, all of it was just so much fun. And I was like, I'm never leaving. This is the place for me. In listening to that description, right, I'm smuggling fruit trees, I'm running a rifle range, and I'm going out and, and doing kinetic operations. The VSO mission sounds like an amalgamation of civil affairs, the PTTs, the omelets, the ETTs, all of those teams that got ad hoc kind of put together for Afghanistan. What made your team or you successful as a Green Beret doing this VSO mission? I think uh, in Afghanistan, uh, we have more street cred than, than those types of units because we're Green Berets, we're special operations. The Afghans just re respect um, the profession of arms. So you can't, you can't bargain and negotiate with them if they know that you can meet them on the battlefield, even if they're your friends. Uh, so I think Green Berets coming um, and, and bringing that, like, I'm a, I'm a commando, but I'm also here to fix these problems, is a, is a unique thing that, that really worked well with, with the Afghans. Uh, and, uh, and, I, and I think that that is that we, not that we did any of those missions better than those units, but we had that credibility with it. Well, if you don't want to be my friend, I guess you're my enemy. And that's that's like, well, that, I don't. I definitely don't want to be that guy. And I and I lend that to our success. Obviously, I'm I'm not a I'm not better at doing civil affairs than, than a civil affairs guy. I'm not better at uh, you know coming up with a theme than a psyops guy. But the Afghans will trust me and listen to me because uh, I'm there living with them. I'll fight the enemy at night, and then they, they trust that. Where was your team located? Uh, Miri, in the Andar province of Afghanistan. What was the general mood and? So it was uh, they uh, generally not as kinetic as other areas. Uh, the Taliban was trying to leave it at a low simmer so that they could transit men, weapons, and equipment through it uh, for for other areas of Afghanistan. Um, but our our uh, our Afghan local police checkpoints um, started being a hindrance to that. So we you know, we built that program up, and they decided that they were you know they were going to have to. Um, fix that problem because they, they couldn't they couldn't transit the materials they needed to support their war with those checkpoints in the way. So right after we got there, they they got pretty aggressive at trying to uh, eliminate our checkpoints. Um, they didn't have enough men to hit more than one or two checkpoints at a time, and and overwhelm it um, rapidly. 
so we would kind of sit up every night, uh, either do an ambush to break up their attacks on our checkpoints, and then stage a QRF to, to move to whatever checkpoint they were going to hit and, and kind of drive them off of our uh, checkpoints. So it, it started um, not too busy, and then it, it gradually got more and more kinetic. Uh, to the, and then you know, we, we killed enough of them uh, in a couple key um, um, battles that they, they decided the, the, it wasn't worth it. And they kind of went down, went to bed again, and uh, decided to invest the, that, that um, effort uh, elsewhere. And uh, which, to our detriment, you know, because then it got really stable down there. I still remember my uh, company sergeant major flew in and was looking for me. And at this point, you know, I'm, I'm doing all those things we talked about earlier, and I've just been crushing it. And I know that whatever he's looking for me, I'm not scared because I know he's going to come and tell me what a great job I'm doing. Unfortunately, you know, he did notice that they were closing our camp, and I had the option to work for him and the company headquarters or go home. And uh, I didn't go to selection to live live at home. Um, so I chose to, to work at the company headquarters. I uh, wasn't excited about it though. And uh, but I, you know, I figured at least the company headquarters was deployed in country. Any work deployed is better than uh, no work back home. What was that transition like going from your own kingdom, basically, yeah. in, in, in Miri to <clears throat> the headship? It was tough. You know, I, I had I had a gi- gigantic uh, beard, and I wore vests. Uh, and uh, strutted around my own little kingdom, you know, exactly right to, uh, you know, wearing a, a, a uniform. I had to shave every day and get army haircuts and, uh, and uh, didn't really need a gun. Um, you know, I had one, obviously, because I'm deployed, but uh, my, my job was, was mostly uh, uh, logistical in nature. So, you know, teams would have put in orders for, for gun parts because they had broken firearms, and I would order them and get them out to them and then forecast the ammo that they had consumed in a gunfight and get it get it out them as expeditiously as possible by air or by a you know ground convoy. So not exciting work, um, and and uh, which kind of it led me in my my uh, distaste for that job. You know I I I decided I wasn't going to let somebody get killed because I didn't do my job well because um, I you know I knew everybody I was supporting and I I didn't want somebody to to die because I was mopey about my job. So I did it, you know, I threw myself into the work. And uh but I'm I'm still waiting for my chance to get back onto a team, you know. I'm I'm up every night praying that some uh weapon sergeant gets too aggressive at the deadlift and throws his back out so I can come take his job. And uh you know, anyway, I stayed I stayed ready. I trained anytime I could. Uh, executed our, our tasks with our, our small arms. We call them CTEs because uh, I couldn't do anything else. You know, I'm, I'm training by myself most of the time, and so I, I stayed sharp and proficient with my uh, weapons. And I'm just there waiting uh, for something better to happen to me, which you know, are you know, not even arguably that is, that's why I was successful when when uh, uh, Bob Gosling was attacked. Is I, I stayed extremely proficient. Uh, my equipment and arms were ready, uh, and I never stopped being a, a, a team guy, uh, even though I was on the AOB. Uh, just working as as a headquarters guy. When Fob Gosney was attacked, where were you? I was in our med shed, uh, hanging out with the the medic on the AOB. He and I both were. We call, I call it you know we were eorn it up, talking about how awesome we were and what what a huge waste it, it was having us in the headquarters and not on a team where we can win the war on terror. I walked in uh, to hang out with him, and it was you know perfectly clear day when I walked in, and in the middle of that we. We were like picking ourselves up off the floor, and I still remember like his floor was just littered with uh, all his meds and, and bandages and medical intervention uh, supplies were off the shelf and on the ground. 
And uh, we, we'd been getting indirect fire for about two weeks, almost every day uh, up to that point. Uh, you know, I thought it was just harassment fires. Uh, it turned out the Taliban was actually building a shot card for our camp and then observing uh, and, and meticulously um, mapping out what we did when we got direct fire, indirect fire attacks. But uh, I, at this point, I, I thought that the uh, med shed had been hit by uh, artillery, you know, and, and uh, we're both fine. The patient he was treating, we had a, had a guy in there that had diarrhea and was getting IV. He was fine. And, uh, you know, I, I remember walking out because I was going to tell everybody, you know, don't worry about us because, you know, I've, I know they were, they heard this explosion and I'm sure that the, our our building got hit and I don't want everybody running in there to try and save us. Just tell them we're good. Stay where you're at. But as I opened the door, there's just a, uh, a pall of dusty fog over the entire camp. You know, you can't see more than 25, 35 meters because there's all this dust everywhere. And uh, I start hearing uh, explosions and small arms, and I look over my my shoulder, uh, and I see this, uh, you know, mushroom cloud just building up in the air, uh, you know, like, you know, 1,000, 2,000 feet in the air, this just tremendous uh, explosion. And I remember being relieved, actually, because I was like, you know, Finding the enemy is the hardest part. And I was like, they, you know, I can't get outside the camp. It looks like they're coming on the camp, so it's a win. <laughs> this is a huge change in your mentality from that first gunfight. Oh, yeah. Right? So you're not hunkered down behind those 50 cal spades. What happened in the next 30 seconds to two minutes? So the next 30 seconds, uh, I all my equipment was on the steps to the company headquarters because I, I uh, had just taken a change of command photo. And uh, at that point, I thought the best the best way for me to get involved in another team's gunfight or even defend the camp was to be a sniper. Uh, so I had uh, a Mark 20, which is a a, a scar that's uh, you know a heavy heavy accurized version of the scar, not a little gun. And that's I'm set up to, to be a you know a sniper. And so I th- throw my kit on, grab my sniper rifle, and I uh, had a satchel. That's that's my my you know double basic load. I've got a a bag of grenades and extra ammo, and I throw it, throw it in this truck, this Toyota Tacoma. And uh, I'm as I'm trying to get in, a uh, buddy of mine, Nate Ebkemeyer, he was a military intelligence guy for our company. He came running over. He's getting his stuff on, and he's like, "I'm driving." And I remember, like, of course you're driving. I'm a super badass sniper. I'm not gonna be driving. Get it. Get me to the battlefield. We start to pull out, and we almost run over another buddy of mine, uh, Drew Busick, who's the uh, he was on my team, and, and like me, he's been um, put on the on the AOB as the intelligence sergeant. And he's on a four-wheeler, and I remember yelling at him, like, hey, get in with us. You're going to get shot up on that four-wheeler. And uh, so he did. He ran over, jumped in, and we, you know, whip out of there and uh, pull out of the SF camp um, and start, you know, headed for the headed for the um, battle. But as we pull out, we start taking fire from the uh, to our left. And there's, there's about 60 to 80 fighters, I guess, have uh, mounted the third floor of this hotel. Uh, and they've, they've set up recoilless rifles, machine guns, and RPGs. And they're, they're firing them at us because we're the only thing out there moving around. And we kind of think about getting involved and, and fighting them. But uh, ultimately, we decided, you know, there's still a wall here. Um, and wherever this, this V-bit is detonated, that's probably the, the place that has the most need. And we just, uh, we figured that... You know, we can hear that fire over there, and I just thought there was no way there weren't going to be mass casualties down there, um, because this this bomb was you know three to five thousand pounds to, depending on how it was mixed. Um, but it's just monstrous, and uh, so we're we're going to go to this breach. We're going to go over this um, ID is detonated. And as we're driving down, my my company warrant and another medic 
uh, from, a, from a different team, Matt Horde and uh, Mark Colbert. They pull up. They're on a four-wheeler. Uh, we're racing toward this uh, uh, you know, mushroom cloud, and we're you know pointing, giving thumbs up, like, yeah, yeah, that's where we're going. And we, we move down, and, I, and uh, at the last covered and concealed position, as you kind of go into the airfield, <clears throat> I started having the, the truck slow down because I was going to get out, climb up on this wall with my uh, sniper rifle, and uh, I can see kind of this base of fire. I can see fire coming in. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like, well, I'll, I'll be able to run all this. And then, uh, you know, uh, Mark and, and uh, Matt pull in front of us on the four-wheeler, and they both just get crushed uh, by small arms fire, both getting shot up. And uh, But we have a battle drill for that, uh, so, you know, we don't even have to talk about it. Um, Nate starts whipping forward to pull in between them and that fire. And I kick my door open because I'm going to pull out on the, we call it the clean side, dirty sides where the bad guys are, the clean sides where we are. I'm going to come out, uh, start pulling security over the hood, and then, you know, these guys are going to get out and, and get them off the X. Uh, but as we pull forward, uh, we pull into the um, uh, a circle of, of uh, what looked like Afghan army. Uh, there's like 10 or 15 of them laying around. And uh, for a split second, I was like, oh, okay, let's, let's, I'm going to grab these guys and get them in the fight. And uh, But uh, they saved me the trouble uh, by, you know, turning inboard and this started... Uh, started all firing into the truck that we were in. And that's when I figured out that they weren't Afghan army, that they were Taliban uh, wearing wrong uniforms. Uh, but, you know, at this point I've got my door open. Um, I've got my rifle kind of turned around the wrong way because uh, I didn't see him sitting there and I'm trying to dismount. Anyway, I rip my rifle around, stick it out, uh, try to engage the nearest fighter, fire one round and my rifle jams. Um, the SCAR had a charging handle. I'm, I'm fairly certain that when I stuck it out, the charging handle... I uh, got hung up on the door, and uh, I short-stroked it and, and induced a complex malfunction. And uh, I remember I, I felt it. Um, I felt it malfunction, so I didn't even attempt to, to fire another round, and, and my pistol's out. But I'm still facing, like, seven guys at, you know, maybe 12, 15 meters firing on me. And I just figured that I was a goner, to be honest with you. I didn't, I didn't think that I would uh, make it out of that situation. So I, I just decided um, I was going to die going forward. And uh, maybe that I could buy enough time for, for uh, Nate and Drew to figure something else out. And uh, so I started advancing on, on the nearest group of guys with my pistol. And I started giving everybody a couple rounds of 9 mil. And uh, I got right up there in the middle of them. <clears throat> and uh, most of them had run off as I advanced on them. Uh, I have no idea why. Uh, I, I think they were probably frustrated and needed to reload. Uh, they missed me with every round they fired at me. Uh, and then I didn't. Uh, I was getting hits, uh, injuring them, and I hit one in the in the hips, and and put him down. But I pulled up behind cover, and my you know my pistols mostly out of ammunition. My rifles jammed. Uh, nobody's with me. I didn't really count on this being that successful. But I, you know I got a hand grenade, so I, I pulled out a hand grenade, and I, I figured nobody likes hand grenades, so I uh, just kind of lean out real quick and toss it um, blindly, and uh, I hit that. I hit that guy that, w that I'd uh, injured was laying there. I hit him in the belly with it. And uh, I tucked back behind the, this water tank and started you know, doing remedial action on my rifle, you know, locking the bolt to the rear, stripping the magazine, clawing this stuff out of there, put in a fresh mag, uh, sent the bolt home about the same time the grenade detonated. And, and uh, I'm, that's my, I think that's the coolest part of the story because I fixed this malfunction uh, in three to five seconds. So says you know, the, the manufacturer of grenades for the U.S. government. But uh, anyway, I got my rifle up and uh, 
trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I start taking fire to my, from my rear. And I turn, I see a guy. He's about 100 meters away, sling supported prone position, um, just kind of, you know, s- slow firing rounds at me. And, uh, you know, later I, I saw a nice little group uh, of rounds, about four of them, um, nice and tight on that wall. And he, he was going for a headshot and just either uh, couldn't pull it off or had a bad zero. Uh, don't know. I didn't get to talk to him. But uh, I know he was at a, 100 meters away because it's where we do sprints in the morning, uh, you know. So I, I dropped to a knee. I held the center of his, uh, um, the notch of his throat and clavicle and pulled the trigger and uh, just vaporizing. Uh, he just explodes and he's gone. And I uh, come back up and I'm kind of shocked at that, but I, you know, it dawns on me. I just, uh, you know, shot a guy with a suicide vest with my sniper rifle and I'm just ecstatic. Like, you know, every sniper wants that uh, in their, in their logbook. And, uh, but I still got the rest of these guys off my right. I can still hear people yelling behind me, you know, Chief's hit, Matt's hit, I'm hit, you know, and and, uh, so I'm like, I'm not going to let these guys come around this corner, but if they're trying to maneuver somewhere on the camp, I'm going to stay engaged uh, and and limit that that maneuver uh, until somebody catches up with me and and we'll we'll finish this. Uh, So I start moving to where they were, and, and they, I get about halfway to them, and they, you know, break or not break from cover, they hang muzzles from cover. They all used excellent um, method of engagement the, the entire battle. So they, they're all firing from behind cover um, at me, and uh, I'm trying to return fire as best I can because uh, I, I got a sniper rifle. I got a little 45 red dot, but it's pretty, it's pretty easy. It's pretty uh, hard to use that uh, to run an El Prez under stress. And uh, anyway, I'm firing back and forth, kind of playing whack-a-mole, trying to catch these guys, and uh, my rifle runs dry. And my, you know, my pistol is uh, uh, not uh, going to be that useful. And I, and I just remember I was like, I got to get my gun reloaded because uh, uh, that's that's the only thing that's going to save me back here. So I, I start my reload as soon as I dump my mag. The nearest fighter sprinted from cover. Uh, I still remember threw his rifle into his sling and just started covering that ground as fast as he could. Uh, unfortunately for him, I could reload faster than he could sprint, and uh, I fired a couple rounds at him and, and detonated his vest which uh, blew me down, um, didn't knock me out, but I was awful confused for a little bit. Uh, I remember trying to figure out why my bed had so much sand and rocks in it, and then um, yeah, figuring out, oh, yeah, I'm not in bed, I'm, I'm out here. And uh, I could hear uh, rifle fire, and, and uh, I look up, and there's another fighter is broken from cover, and he's walking down on me trying to shoot me in the head. But he's not, uh, he's not aiming down his rifle. He's just looking at my face, and he's got his rifle at the low ready, and all of his rounds are landing short. Um, so I, I jerk my rifle up and just hammer away at him and fold him up and uh, climb to my feet, and I start engaging uh, all his buddies to his rear, and my rifle runs dry again. Um, so this time, I'm like, I'm not going to do this uh, out here in the open again. So I, I dump that mag as I, as I turn and run back to the corner where I started. And that's where I bump into Drew Busick, and uh, he saw me go down that lane. He's been fighting to get out of the truck, and, and uh, he came came up behind me, and I'm like, hey, I know where they're at. Let's go get them. And so we um, come back down this lane. He's on the on the left. I'm on the right. And now it's more coordinated. You know, this is something uh, I recognize. We got cross coverage. We're moving, uh, moving uh, into the enemy, and uh, he's about to step over this body. And I remember yelling at him, like, stay away from the bodies. They got suicide vests on, which holds him up. 
And that last guy I had shot, he's just laying there all crumpled up, and he's smoking. And, uh, you know, as I yelled that they have suicide vests, the vest goes low order and just starts burning uh, vigorously. It was like a blowtorch, you know, 20, 30 feet in the air, which uh, pushes Drew over to me. And there's a little uh, generator panel on the wall, and, and we both end up behind it. All the rest of the guys just start chucking every hand grenade they had. Uh, they had a belt. They had about 20 hand grenades on it for each guy, and they're just just throwing them just as fast as they can. So the whole lane just starts um, detonating with these grenades all over the place. Drew and I are, are working that cover, trying to trying to shoot at them, and you know they're they're um, they're covering. They got a guy that's that's trying to suppress us with his rifle while you know other guys are throwing grenades. It's pretty well coordinated. And, uh, you know, Drew and I are working through this, trying to, you know, trying to line up sights on a guy, but then, you know, a grenade blows up, uh, and it's a pretty tough shot to pull off. And I get hit in the throat. And uh, I look down, and I've got a grenade uh, pinned in between uh, my admin pouch. It's kind of resting on the top of my admin pouch in my chest and this generator panel. I'm not super pumped to have it because they kept the, the spoon and the pin. Um, so anyway, I swipe that grenade off of me. Uh, it detonates out to our front. And uh, I'm, I'm shaking that off, and I feel something hit me in the back of the leg. And I, I look down, and a grenade, when I was looking down and kind of bent over messing with this other grenade, they'd thrown another one at me, and it hit the wall and bounced off the back of my knee. And it's, it's back there between me and Drew. And we're both kicking at it, trying to get it out of there. And uh, we do. We pull that off. And then another explosion, whether we just didn't kick that grenade very far or, or something else blew up. But it, it blew Drew and I down behind our cover. And uh, remember, he, he got up first, and he was, like, ripping me to my feet. And he's like, hey, we got to get out of here. They're going to kill us. And uh, he kind of, like, yanked me with him, and we took off running down the lane. And then we got, both got blown down again, um, and, and I was on top of him at this time. And I remember trying to climb up off of him, and I'm trying to figure out, my, get my rifle uh, back in my shoulder, and I can't. And my buttstock's folded, and, and my sling's all tangled up, and I, I got hit in the buttstock with uh, – a human arm from about the elbow down had come in and smacked my rifle and uh, messed my buttstock up. And uh, anyway, we, Drew and I got up, we ran down to the uh, corner again, and Mark Colbert's still there, Chief Colbert. And he comes limping up because he's been shot through the butt. And uh, he's like, you know, what are you guys doing? I'm like, Chief, we know right where they're at. Let's go get them. <laughs> and he's like, all right then. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, Chief stacks up on me. Uh, Drew moves over. We had we had a Navy SEAL that was there, uh, Lieutenant Turnip Seed. Uh, he stacks up with with Drew, and we start heading back down there. Uh, before I go around the corner, though, I'm like trying to reload, and I can't find any magazines. And I look down, it's because they're all gone. I pull my mag, and I only got one round in my magazine, and I'm like, mm, you know, not this isn't the best way to do it. So I start yelling at Chief. I'm like, Chief, you got to take point. And you know, he's behind me. And he's like, What? Why do I got to take point? And I was like, I'm out of ammo. I only got one bullet. And uh, you take point, I'll cover you. And, and uh, you know, he, he's like, yeah, I bet. <laughs> but he does. He comes in front of me. We start easing down that lane. At this time, uh, a Polish lieutenant and then a, a soldier from the 10th Mountain came running up, Mike Aulis. Uh, and and he's, uh, he's in his combat shirt with his rifle with one magazine in it. I guess he was in the uh, MWR, you know, playing Xbox or something. And, and he sprinted across the camp. Uh, and saw us, saw us headed down that lane and, and jumped in the back of our stack. And uh, anyway, we, we start pulling down there. And uh, not that it's quiet. You know, the base of fire still is shooting at anything that moves out there. And, and there's still indirect fire 
uh, landing all over the camp. But the the Polish armor has arrived. They've they've plugged the breach and they're starting to suppress um, the stuff off post. And uh, and the, the there's just bodies everywhere uh, and pieces of bodies everywhere. And uh, and that there's nothing really going on. And, and um, Chief Colbert's like, I think you guys got them all. And as soon as he says that, this guy sits up out from behind a um, a pile of bodies and, and throws two hand grenades at us and then detonates his vest and then uh, you know these these hand grenades detonate and it breaks our stack because everybody's running away from that and once again I start hearing AK fire to my rear and I turn around and there's a there's a there's a, a fighter has run all around this this little uh, lane we're on and he's he's shooting at us from the from the back and uh, I turn fire my my last two rounds at him and then drew has, has also fired at him and and uh, hit him he kind of crashes down and, and detonates and whether you know whether we've detonated his vest by firing at it or whether he hit the ground and detonated his vest or uh, Mike Aulis's, um rifle was also uh, had had a I think about a third of his ammunition had been expended so you know obviously he was engaging but either way the vest detonated right at, at uh, Mike's feet and then blew him most of the distance to me uh, so at this point, I'm I'm completely out of ammunition, um, and I had my pocket knife out. And I remember, uh, you know, being super pumped and looking for somebody to, to stab, and, and then, you know, kind of got a couple breaths in me and realized, like, everybody has a suicide vest out here. Maybe I shouldn't stab them. Um, so I put my knife up, and I run over, and I grab Mike and uh, take him back and, and uh, start treatment on him. Uh, unfortunately, you know, he succumbed to his, his uh, wounds and, and was killed. After that, we pretty much had it handled. The attack ends. Mm -hmm. Your deployment continues, though. How did the transition from intense combat on your base to now I have to forecast weapons, repair parts, and ammo loads, what was that dichotomy like? Uh, So for about a week, we didn't support anybody. We were just, we were 100% security. Uh, We still had this huge gaping wall. Um, we kept finding IEDs all over the place. So that, that went back to, um, you know, things I understand. Uh, we set up a guard rotation for the, for all the towers. We have our, have every crew serve weapon that the AOB owned is, is mounted somewhere. And, uh, unfortunately, you know, I didn't take very much part in that. Um, because even though I was the only member that was down there that didn't get shot, um, all those blasts, I, I had, uh, herniated several discs in my back and uh and had i guess when you get when you get blown up you can shock your pelvic girdle and it'll just uh atrophy away so that was that was the situation i was in so i was on uh, a fair amount of narcotics um but they kept me there um because i want i asked please you know please don't medevac me uh which you know to my detriment you know that's a, a young man's idiot decision but you know it is what it is but i actually made my recovery vastly longer by by not getting medevaced off the battlefield uh, so if i had just let them medevac me away i'd have started physical therapy and, and probably been back on my feet in a, in a, a month five weeks um but by by, by staying I, I delayed it took me like nine months before i could uh could really serve on an oda again um, so anyway I, I was just hanging out you know taking taking drugs and drinking coffee and being a real nco I would point at stuff and it would happen and I would just sit around because I was crippled. <laughs> and then the, uh, you know, the investigation started. You know, I had a, a little a little joke with my Sergeant Major is that uh, I was going to make him give me a, a second bronze star. 
and and he was like adamant. <clears throat> I already got a bronze star on uh, my ODA 1434, and you're not getting two bronze stars. You know that's that's not not going to happen. And we're doing the investigation and doing our sworn statements. And I remember joking with him. I was like, I, like I told you, you're going to have to give me a bronze star. And uh, he said, Hey, I want come here. He's like, Hey, we're, you're not getting a bronze star. Uh, we're going to do a higher level valor award for you. And uh, that was. Uh, shocking to me because I was just joking with him, and the the idea of getting you know one of the one of the higher valor awards, and at that point I thought he was talking silver star or distinguished service cross. I I never thought medal of honor, um, and uh, and anyway he started doing a uh, he did a distinguished service cross <clears throat> with with a recommendation for an upgrade to the medal of honor, and uh, that went up, and then General McConville was was actually the 101st uh, commander, the big landowner. So he sent down a team that did a 15-6 uh, that was that was uh, captured all the um, the uh, forensics of the, of the attack. I think it was a, mine's a rarity. Uh, most of the time, you can't go back and actually take pictures and measure, um, uh, you know, the brass, piles of brass to the engagement sites. Uh, but that's the kind of 15-6 we were able to do because it was like 100 meters from the chow hall. And uh, I, I was actually doing a walkthrough for for. Uh, can't remember who that was but i was doing a walkthrough for somebody showing them where the battle took place and i actually found my grenade pin because i was like i was standing right here and i pulled my pin and i saw it in the gravel and i i found i have it as a keychain at my house i have my grenade pin uh, and that's how i found it so uh, uh that's you know that's what we went went to doing and and uh after about a month later um uh, the camp is still taking their security much more seriously but we're back to um you know running as a support node how much longer did that deployment last? Uh, about two months longer. So the I think a couple of weeks after the attack, the Advon for the for the unit that was replacing us came in, and uh, I always like talking to those guys because you know they're they're not pumped to be on the AOB because it's mostly the AOB guys coming in, and uh, you know we got mortar craters all over the the place. Uh, every building has bullet holes and shrapnel damage, and we're like, this is the AOB. Uh, here's how the mortar pit works. And like, why does the AOB have a mortar pit? And I'm like, well, let me tell you about that hotel over there. <laughs> we keep it laid in on that, and you should too. Uh, so it was, that was a pretty neat uh, handoff. Earl, I want to thank you for your, your time today and the opportunity to follow your career through enlisting at 17 and all the way on to, to where you are today. So thanks for sharing that with us, Bear. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.